put that coffee down. Coffee is for creators only. My name is James Newcomb, and I'm inviting you to an exclusive accountability program that will help you set and achieve your creative goals. It costs nothing but your time and patience. Go to coffeeisforcreators.com to learn more. It's the story of the trumpet in the words of those who play it. What is it about this crazy mass of metal tubing that makes us laugh, cry, want to flat out quit at times, and then keep coming back for more? My name is James Newcomb, and I am thrilled to host this show that brings on world-famous, not-famous, and everything-in-between trumpeters to share what keeps the trumpet blowing and the music flowing. It's the Trumpet Dynamics Podcast, and it begins now. Today is a really special episode, not only because it's with a fantastic guest, Manny Loriano, but it was one of those rare occasions where I was able to record a podcast in person. That does not happen often. Manny and I just dove deep into a lot of things, and uh, anyone who knows Manny knows that he is uh, just a very thought-provoking, very well-spoken, very articulate gentleman, and uh, he did not disappoint in this interview. I'm just going to leave it at that. There was no formal introduction uh, of the guest. Everybody knows Manny. Let's just say that. And so I'm just going to turn it over to uh, our conversation and you get to hear the uh, relaxing uh, hypnotic wind chimes in the background. Uh, Every now and then there might be a cool breeze, but that just made it all the more special and all the more enjoyable. And I think you're really going to enjoy this one. So here we go. It is Myself and Manny Loriano. Well, I, I grew up here in the Twin Cities, and uh, you were my hero back in the day, <laughs> going to Orchestra Hall as a young trumpet player. And um, I, yes, you and I, I, I don't think we actually met in person until 2017, 18-ish uh-huh. in North Carolina. Right. But before that, you and I spoke on the podcast we were talking about William Vacchiano. Right. Right. Which was a great way to start a podcast. Yeah, no kidding. That, that, was, that was a little bit of interest for that one. That was a good one. Yeah, good. And good. Um, But that that's my history is I uh, grew up in the Twin Cities and trumpet was my thing. And now podcasting. Well, Where did you go to school? Where did you go to high school and all that? High school was Champlin Park High School. Champlin Park. So were you in Getsies or anything like that? Were you interested in orchestra playing or, or what? Uh, I I was mostly a band guy. I didn't really get into the, like the uh, extracurricular stuff. Okay, okay. So you played in the band when you were in the service. Yes. So I had two stints in the military. One was in the nineties. Okay. And the second was '08 through '15. Okay. So then, oh, interesting. Okay. So um, then when how did you get into knowing my work in the orchestra? Well, I grew up here. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And so I went to concerts, and there you were. All right. And well, then, you know, but see, that's the thing. A lot, a lot of guys, you know, they're they're like strictly band stuff, and and orchestras like that thing that they never really check right. out. You know, so so I would say I I would dare to say that you were fairly unusual that way. 
I'm an unusual in a, a lot of things. Really. <laughs> <laughs> it's not just that. I didn't really get really interested in orchestra music until probably the late uh, aughts of the 2000s. Oh, okay. So it was probably around 2007, when I met someone who's... He went to the Eastman School of Music, okay. and so he knows his stuff, and he listened to me play. And I was I was a good amateur, okay. okay. But you know, I'd, I'd never it just never occurred to me to make it a professional. Well, I mean, you had to be you had to have some chops to play with the army band, right? Yeah, you have to. People think of the army band, and they think of all the bands in D.C. Oh, okay, all right. And all right. so, yes, you have to be you, you have to be play at a very high level. To win one of those gigs, but uh, if you're at the like the division levels, okay, um, okay, you have a wide disparity of talent. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I have I have a very and interest in music. Yeah, well, I, you know, <laughs> speaking of that, um, I have a story that um, a, a, a friend told me about an audition that he took for one of those bands, and one of the things that was on the list was that Blue Rondo a la Turca. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. That's a and so my friend was like trained at Northwestern. I mean, the guy was a serious classical player, so he had him play it, and he played and so the guy who was auditioning him says, he says, "You're playing the rhythm wrong," and he goes, "I am." And he says, yeah, it's supposed to be... Yeah, yeah, I'm not kidding. Really? I, I, yeah, no, really, really. I, I mean, the guy... I remember him describing him. Uh, and, and one of the things he says to my friend was, how come you play everything like you're in a concert? So <laughs> <laughs> I think formality was, was not in this guy's bailiwick. So... <laughs> So that Dave Brubeck thing is supposed to be has some sixteenth notes. Oh, uh, according, according to, to this that. guy, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. I don't know. I've heard that song more than once, and uh-huh. I don't uh-huh. recall any sixteenth notes. But I haven't seen the music, so you uh, never know. The- <laughs> nah, uh, I, I think I think we're safe in guessing uh, that my friend was playing it right. <laughs> so. Well, Manny, we got some people listening in. Not right now, mm-hmm. but when this publishes, people, hopefully, at least more than three will listen in. Good. And so I want to introduce myself. Of course, I'm James Newcomb. I'm the host of the show. And, of course, we have Manny Loriano, the, the longtime principal trumpeter with the um, Minnesota Orchestra. That's a nice way of saying 40 years. <laughs> I like that, long time. Then I, I was the numbers. <laughs> I, I, I wanted to be diplomatic and use... I was, I'm fast on my feet, and so thankfully I thought of the... the Diplomatic, the, the most, uh, the best, yes. the best word. Yes. Forty years, forty years, man, and My that's goodness. just here. Um, cause and I you was were in four years, Seattle. That's right. I was four years in Seattle. I, wow. my, my wife refers to um, Seattle as my postgraduate education, which, in a lot of ways, it, it was. Um, I mean, of things that people don't know or realize about me is that I'm somewhat of an anomaly. Uh, maybe not so much these days, but at least back back then. Um, from the moment I picked up the trumpet to when I got that job in Seattle, it was ten years, because I started when I was in seventh grade and I got that job in Seattle. I had just turned twenty-two, and so I was just out of Juilliard. So literally, after having spent the summer with Emerson Lake and Palmer on tour with them, 
I landed that job, and uh, it, it was uh, it was an incredible thing because at that point it was the um, Seattle um, Symphony Opera and Ballet, which I think they changed to dance because they didn't want to be known as the S S O and B, the S S O B. So <laughs> Seattle S O B. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so. <laughs> So, so that got changed fairly quickly, but um, the point is, is that I learned symphonic repertoire, I learned ballet repertoire, and I learned opera repertoire. A lot of these, let's say, like Wagner operas, when people do the ring cycle and stuff like that, well, many people have just played the excerpts, and I've had the incredible treat of having played the entire ring cycle eight times before I got out here. They did a version first in German, and then they did the the English version. So one week of uh, of the Ring Cycle in German, and, and then one more week after that in English. And it was a fantastic time to learn all of this uh, different repertoire. I, I love playing opera. You have to remember that one of my teachers was Mel Broyles. Yes, and his love of opera was just infectious. Of course. In fact, the first time that I uh, went to an opera was courtesy of Mel, who got me a couple of tickets to go see Manon Lascaux. And uh, the spectacle of the thing being in the Metropolitan Opera House, oh my goodness, for, for a, a kid in school to to be able to, to experience something like that. It, you know, th- this, is, this is just a, an indication of Mel's generosity and how he would, you know, take an interest in in certain students, if he felt that there was a, a little there there, that he wanted to encourage it, and I, isn't that just the way though with with um, trumpet players in in certain positions, right? Uh, you you take uh, Mr. Vacchiano, with whom I studied for all four years the, that I was there. Um, he would not just teach you, but when he saw that you were really really serious. Then he, uh, then he would say, well, you know, uh, you should get to know this guy. Or he'd contact you. Next time you talk to this guy, whoever it was, he would say, you know, I got this student. You might want to give him a call. And that's what started happening with me. And also Jerry Schwartz, who had yes. succeeded Mr. Vacchiano in the Philharmonic. He was another one. I used to call Jerry my musical godfather because he took such familial care of me when he when he could tell that that I had something a little special, he started um, throwing my name around to to um, contractors and all that stuff, and I was starting to to play with some great players. Man, my my first professional gig, Louis Ranger was playing first trumpet. Um, Ray Crisara, I got to play second trumpet to Ray Crisara on a job with the Elliott Feld Ballet that, that where Jerry was conducting. I got to play second trumpet to Jerry for an Easter oratorio right down there, right near Lincoln Center where he was playing. And I, I mean, uh, when I think of just the, the gift of these wonderful, wonderful professionals, it influences you. And when you, when I see a, uh, uh, a player that's got a little something, something going on, then I try and make it my business to, to see what kind of work I can throw their way. And so, what that. about this something, something? Because there, there's obviously the 
the element of the chops. The mm. the young person has some skills and abilities. What other uh, factors make up that? I'm going to tell you, and and you know, I'm probably. I made my career quoting all of these great teachers, but Vacchiano really put it best. He said, to be a successful trumpet player, you need to to have three qualities. Uh, you, You have to have a superior tone, you have to have wonderful technique, and you have to have a, a, a terrific um, endurance or upper register or combination of both. Now, here's the way it works. If you've got a really nice sound, that's going to attract people's attention. If you don't have, if you haven't developed a technique yet, maybe you haven't developed the upper register, okay, fine. You know, it's like, it's like a, a, a young pitcher that the scouts will see. They might not be terribly accurate but you can teach that see and uh, this is the same thing you can teach all, all these sorts of things if you have a player who's got blazing technique maybe not the best sound yet again you can teach all that brilliant upper register uh, or, or great endurance that 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 person's the, the last one to, 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 to go that one's always standing up at the end of the show if you have any one of those attributes, it's going to get you noticed. If you have two of those, you're probably going to get some sort of work. If you've got all three, then you've probably got a fairly serious career. If you think of somebody who has a beautiful tone, great technique, and wonderful endurance and upper register, Who's not going to want to hire that person? Unless you're a jerk, right? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That's sort of what I was going for because you have the. You, it's one thing to have the abilities, and it's another thing to have the mindset and the attitude that you, you can take those abilities and do something special. With yeah, them. you're right because you know you've there. There's any number of of folks out there that have had those attributes and just kind of screwed themselves out of a great career just because of saying having a habit of saying the wrong things mm. constantly you look uh, i mean i had to mature on on the job because when i got my my first um gig i like i said i was i was 22 years old uh, in seattle and before that i was uh, in, you know i was in school and and all that and and when you're in your 20s I don't know what your 20s were like, but mine, I, I, there, there's a whole lot of stuff that I, that I said, that, things that came out of my mouth that I would really dearly like to take back. And uh, for anybody's listening that's nodding their head right now who knew me back then, um, I apologize now. <laughs> but, you know, that that's the way it is. It, you know, in, in college, you know, that's kind of what you learn is is is, is just to blather on because you're kind of developing your mental jobs as well and then eventually you 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 go out and uh, onto jobs and and you start to observe who are the beloved musicians in the business guys like Ray Crisara oh my god a brilliant trumpet player with a beautiful sound gorgeous technique wonderful endurance and 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 upper register and was the consummate gentleman on the stand. And this was, you have to remember, when I met Ray, 
Um, I'm sorry. Can you? Can you? Uh, I'm I'm not familiar with that. Oh, name. I'm sorry. Okay, Ray Crisara. Ray Crisara was the consummate freelancer in in New York City. He's okay. the guy that did all the dates. I mean, there were obviously more. There was, Wilmer Wise was 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 around at the time, and but plenty of, of of players that were that were playing there. But Wilmer Wise was one of the deans of New York freelance trumpet. He was on all the recordings. He did all, lots of commercials. He did plenty of Broadway stuff. He played in all the different styles. So he was equally at home at playing um, kind of pops-type material as he was playing beautiful, you know, classical stuff. And I heard that on display Hmm. when um, I uh, played this Elliot Feld ballet thing with him and and his sound i mean i i i swear i i missed entrances just because i was sitting there gaga wow. listen listening so i mean i had to remember to count just from listening to how gorgeous his his sound was and as i say he's he was a wonderful model for how to behave and how to be how to be a well-regarded musician on the stand you know Really, uh, so I was I was very fortunate to to be around people like that, and I was around the more abrasive types. I mean, I remember doing an, an Easter job, and the guy saw that I was younger, probably by like about a year and a half, and uh, decided he would teach me the ropes and said, "Yeah, well, you got to make sure when you get paid, you got to count the money right in front of those guys." Ah, and I'm going, "That's good advice." Well, it's well, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, nothing better than paying somebody to wait a minute. Let me count this. Oh my, my God! So <laughs> uh, you you have to kind of be very judicious about the advice that you uh, that you. And when you're receive. younger, it's 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 hard to it filter out which what's good harder. and what's bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Your it's... brain isn't quite fully developed no. when you're 22. No, no, it's not. And I, I mean, doing things like having. My very first rehearsal to Mahler second and leaving my music home, you I've know that's that. that's the sort of thing that will make an impression. Yes, <laughs> the oh wrong kind of impression. Oh God! First I, in- that first year in Seattle, I, I I got rid of I got all rid of all my rookie mistakes in 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 the first year in the first few months actually. So when you're in Seattle, it's like the the one job was the symphony, the ballet. And the opera? Uh, yeah, that was that was all one orchestra. We, yeah, yeah. Our season, we'd okay. So we would open up the season with uh, maybe an outdoor concert, like "Hey, we're we're back, come see us." And then we'd play uh, our opening concert. You know, we'd play maybe a couple of weeks, and then the opera would open up. So we'd play the opera, and uh, the ballet had fewer concerts, so the Nutcracker was the big deal, and the Pacific Northwest Ballet uh, Nutcracker was a gorgeous one, especially uh, after I left, um, they came out here on tour, and fabulous, absolutely fabulous. So uh, I, goodness, how many Nutcrackers did I play while I was out there? Probably in four years, I probably played 100 of them, literally, literally, probably about 100 of them, and enjoyed them all. Um, I was one of those that, you know, I'm 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 just a sucker for that kind of 
kitsch. I I love that music. So what's it, it makes so, me happy. So what's it like when you're in Juilliard? You're probably playing that's that's expert the the, or the excerpt the uh, dun 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 dun. The first time so you, I played it, I heard it. The first time I heard it, I played it. I didn't know anything about it. I I had never heard. See, I'd only known the suite, so I had never played the entire ballet. Okay. So the first time I played the ballet, you know, and then I'm looking through the music and and um, I'm going, mm, wow, this this looks like it would probably work better on another horn. Now, why is that important? Because I had studied with Vacchiano and Vacchiano was all about making the job easier by playing things on the right instrument, not, you know, not Puffing through things, you know, the audience doesn't really care. <laughs> you know, as Jerry Schwartz so beautifully put it, he says, "What are you going to do? Play, play uh, something and be a hero for the the six trumpet players that are out in the audience? No, you you got to play the thing right for 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 yeah. the audience that's watching on TV or listening on the radio or what? You got to you got to play in a secure way. So I've always played that yamta on the E flat trumpet. In fact, when I would do Trump, uh, um, the uh, Nutcracker, I played it on three instruments. I played it on the B-flat primarily, but mo- most of it was on the B-flat because of the Russian tradition. I just thought it was kind of a cool thing to, to, to play on the B-flat. That little section where the, um, uh, the, the evil little brother comes through with his, with his soldier buddies, I said, you know, this would sound good on a piccolo trumpet because it should sound like a toy trumpet and so i said that would be the right sound and then i kept the e flat for that little spanish solo because it just fits so beautifully in 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 g major when you when you play it so you know that's that's the kind of influence that bacchiano had so the right equipment isn't necessarily what's the easiest fingering like in that case of the the one you were looking for a Sound that sounds like a toy trumpet, and in right. case the, the piccolo was the right. So sometimes it's it's you know you go it, it, it's a trade. Mostly you you do want the convenience because you know when you're in the hot seat you, you got to make you got to produce. So. I remember uh, one thing that you said, and I spoke to you about four years ago for a show I was doing called Secrets of the Musical Mind, and you said something along the. I, I, can't remember exactly what you said, so maybe you can clarify it. But you said one strike and you're out. Ah, okay. And and uh, it, I think the idea isn't like get this or else you're done. But you have to have an a mentality of you have one shot at this. You don't get a second shot. It, right. This is the the unwritten book that's in my head. How many times have we in our practice played something and then we fluffed whatever? It was, and then we, we go back, and then we play it right the second time. Okay, so why did we play it properly the second time? Well, there was a certain attention that we now are giving. If we could manage to just harness that ability to be that attentive all the way through a given study, then we would be, I think, a lot more successful, a lot more of the time. In other words, making the second time, in some cases the third time, make it the first time just through proper attention. And you know, my first glimmer of this was with Lessons with Vacchiano. 
uh, I'd play something, and it was it was okay. It was okay. It was it wasn't horrible or anything like that. I mean, I got the main idea of what it was that he was coming across, and I'd say, "Oh, let me play that for you again," and he goes, "No, no, no. You just get one shot." And that made a big impression because he said that to me enough in, in, in lessons where I understood what it was he was trying to say. He says, you know, get your mind into it. Get your, get your head into the game. I've heard um, stories, and I think only the guys in Chicago could really verify this, that Bud was not some. Buddy, but Herseth was not somebody who was given to a whole lot of pre-concert um, jocularity and 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 hanging with the guys and talking and all that stuff. My understanding is that he would kind of I don't I don't know if cloistering himself would be the right thing, but people didn't engage him in a whole lot of just you know idle conversation before because he was in the game before he stepped out on stage he was already in the game and uh had his mindset for what he was going to do he once told me in a lesson that i had with him about Mahler, <clears throat> excuse me about Mahler 5 he said you know sometimes you have to just sort of get in that funereal uh sense of mind get that gravity that that, that uh what do the politicians say? The gravitas, you know, the seriousness of the moment. And damn if he's not right. You, you, as a trumpet player who is interpreting something, are basically taking on the same role as an actor. Okay? If you're going to be Henry V, you've got to be Henry V. You've got to... Feel those lines in your heart. It can't be just superficial sort of memorization. It's got to be something that is really coming from your heart. In that moment, you have to be in the lofty fields of France. You know, you have to 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 feel yourself girding your loins for battle. And uh, while not every single piece that you play is that um, serious. Getting in the mood of the part is important. Look, we just played this this uh, performance that uh, apparently a lot of people really enjoyed, this uh, Summon the Heroes, you know? And it's got that wonderful little solo that, that's kind of part uh, Olympic um, fervor and a little bit of national kind of like like go USA thing and and for me to play that I have to believe every note that I am playing I have to sell a message and here's the cool thing is that the more you immerse yourself in delivering that message the less room there is for the nerves hmm. you know because you're so involved in 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 all the, look I'm, as I'm sitting here talking to you uh, I hope somewhat earnestly about what I'm of the things you're you're asking me I'm not going to be thinking about dinner tonight right. I I, I got to be right. here you know and really want to impart this message yes. to you because I think it's it's important people ask you know God what are the secrets you know to 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 to, to playing and they said you know you you have to believe what you're doing you yeah. really have to believe everything is a given you got the chops you can play you got the sound raw set okay what's next 
well, what else is left but the music itself? Yeah. You got to believe in what it is that, that you're doing. Is, is there a message or not? If you're phoning it in, people are going to know. People are going to know. If you're just playing in a perfunctory way, if you're playing it safe, okay, fine, paycheck's the same whether you play it or, or not, but how well remembered are you going to be for, for, for delivering or not delivering a particular musical message? When people look back on your playing... Are they going to remember the notes? Are they going to remember the passion? Are they going hmm. to remember that one moment hmm. where, where you said, oh my God, I need to go home and practice this because now I know how this thing goes. Hmm. I just had the experience the other day, and this was just kind of a fun thing. Um, our very, very dear colleague, Herb Winslow, who has been assistant um, principal horn uh, for this orchestra for like the last 15, 16 years, um, he, he just retired. Uh, ah. he, he retired. The um, uh, uh, his last concert was just a few few nights ago, and so what were we playing? Tchaikovsky Fourth. So I said, okay, we got to give give him a good send off. So that last fanfare after the build, so let me tell you, James. I gave that sucker everything I had, and it was just because I wanted to give Herb a little something, something to remember me by. <laughs> and on, on when he thinks about his last concert, I wanted him to remember how much damned fun it was and how we weren't playing it safe that night. We were giving it everything. In my head, of course, I have... That wonderful trumpet player. I I have to remember what what his name was. The guy who used to play first trumpet in Leningrad Philharmonic. That guy. Oh, all I can do is just <laughs> just just just. I am not worthy. I am not worthy. <laughs> a, a wonderful example of, of of that great Soviet era trumpet playing, and that's what I wanted Herb to to take with him. I, I, when he thinks about his last show, I want him to think of that one silence after the first fanfare, and then just because there's so much danger. There's It's fraught with danger. I wanted him to remember that last concert as him not playing it safe, you know, and just being uh, all together doing that. So, all right. All right. Do, do orchestras these days play it safe? Because every orchestra, if you ask them, they'll say, of course not. We don't play it safe. But I've heard the, I've heard the complaint. You know, A lot it, of orchestras these days, they play it safe. They all sound the same. I'll tell you. Well, that's, that's two different things. Okay. That's okay. two different things. And I'll be happy to address that. Please. But um, that's all dependent on who's on the podium. That's all about who's on the podium. If you've got somebody whose top concern is, okay, nobody misses notes tonight, nobody misses notes, then that's going to elicit a certain kind of playing. If you've got somebody who has supreme confidence in, in the musicians and it's just like, go ahead, you go for it. You know, um, Schulte was that kind of guy. He knew that he had this this Ferrari in front of him, <laughs> and he would take that puppy out there and just open it up and just to see what it would do. And and he would just just say, "Go ahead, give it. What have you got? What have you got?" And 
of course, they were more than happy to <laughs> let them know precisely what they had back in the days of uh, Herseth and Jacobs and 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 all of those folks that were that were playing in the orchestra at the time. So it really does come from the podium. If you feel like you got to play it safe, you know, then that's kind of your decision as to how you go about doing that. If you feel like like you can go ahead and test some things. You know, hmm. this is why we have more than one concert. And that opens up kind of a philosophical thing. All right. Is the job to go out there and play exactly the same every night? You know, I, I once heard Phil Smith say this, and, and I completely agree with him. Um, if you're playing something that was maybe, maybe it's the first time you're doing it, Okay. And you, you, you. It's got some significant solos. Well, maybe that first night, you the 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 risk will the risks that you take will be ever so slight, but it'll be in, in, in kind of that safe zone. Right. Then once you kind of become a little more comfortable with the piece, and you know what you can do, then you kind of mm. go a, a, a little bit past where your your comfort zone might be, you know? Yeah. So I think given the opportunity, players will always want to play out, out on the edge of that comfort zone because that's where the excitement is. And the, but again, it comes from the podium. Now, as to the other thing, uh, orchestras sounding so much the same. Well, we are now in an era of international musicians in other words trumpet players going to audition for jobs overseas and people from overseas going to you know going i mean there was a time when 50 60 years ago you could count on everybody who was in the berlin philharmonic being german all raised there it was it. just you know those are the people that they they knew the style they knew the traditions and all this stuff the music directors this is what they wanted and um now things are very different you've got i think the uh isn't the fellow from berlin philharmonic i think he's from hungary <clears throat> but okay. he's not only an excellent player but he's a smart player and well studied he knows the traditions of the mm -hmm. berlin philharmonic but still has his own flavor. So things start to kind of change there. So can one identify the Berlin Philharmonic now as easily as they could 50, 60 years ago? I'm not so sure. I can tell you that now in America, it's much harder to identify um, certain orchestras in the in, when when Gil Johnson was first trumpet of the um, Philadelphia Orchestra, his sound was 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 clear. His styling yes. was clear. Yes. Um, when uh, Bud Herseth was was principal trumpet, again his styling was mm -hmm. was very clear. When Roger Voisin was first trumpet of the Boston Symphony, there was no mistaking. Roger Wazan for anybody else. That shimmering vibrato, that articulation that he had typified an orchestra that came very much from a French tradition 
who was the the, the first trumpet player before Roger, his father, René mm, Voisin, right. was there, right. and there were a lot of French players mm. um, in in New York. Um, it, it was a very as a combination of kind of Russian and, and Italian uh, players that, that came. Um, the, in the Middle West, I think the uh, the predominant stylings were probably German. Um, at, at in and I think part of it was because of the stylings of the music director. Even though Fritz Reiner was Hungarian, you know, when you listen to those recordings, it was kind of that that German style. <laughs> so it was relatively easy to hear that. So I had uh, an experience. I was driving on the road and I turned on the radio and what was playing? Uh, Sources Apprentice, Paul Duca. And so I said, oh, let's listen. So I love to play this game. Okay, what, what orchestra is this? See if I could figure it out. So I'm going, oh, this, I think this might be an American orchestra. It's not American. I, I, I think it's a British orchestra. So I settled, I think, in my mind on, on this being either a British or, or an American orchestra playing it. James, I almost fell, I almost drove off the road <laughs> when the announcer comes on and says, and that was L'Orchestre de Paris under such and such. And I said, <laughs> I'll be damned if now I can't identify huh. a French orchestra playing French repertoire. That used to be the easiest right. call in the world. Huh. And now, and, huh. and, and, and I, a musician who's been playing for, for decades with with my experiences, couldn't recognize. So I I was said okay. So yeah, I, I guess the the international uh, quality of people zipping about. So that's what it is. Is like all these different backgrounds. They come to these orchestras. Yes. and they just kind of forget. It's kind their of identity a melody. Yeah, bit. I think so. Huh. I think so. I. Um, well, I want. I mean, I wonder if it's like uh, players are not encouraged. They don't feel safe. Mm. To be to express themselves, right? Is, is that part oh, of it? God, you are so right. I can't even imagine Roger Voisin coming in to an audition today in his peak, right, and winning it because people would say, "Well, the guy's got great technique and all the stuff," but you know that vibrato and, and, and all the stuff. And uh, what 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 a what an absolute pity. <sighs> That that is for for our business. I think that we're so immersed in uh, in this idea of of everybody playing things the same. I think that the success of a William Vacchiano or of any great teacher that we've had in in this country, let's just say in this country, is that the students they produced, who were their best students, did not sound like them. Hmm. You take uh, guys like, for example. I mean, just I'm just thinking right, about sure. when I was when I was there. I would ask Vacchiano about uh, who were his best students, and he would kind of go back and forth between Broyles and Gitala, who sounded nothing like Vacchiano, you know. But he's just talking about the way that they learned and the way that they you know, express themselves. Well, my understanding is that he didn't expect, he didn't encourage people to sound like him. No, he was, exactly right. his philosophy was, you find your own identity 
and we're going to go with that. Yeah. Yeah. I don't even think he went that far. He just mm, said, okay. I'm going to teach you how to phrase. I'm going to teach you to play in tune. I'm going to teach you mm. to, to uh, the uh, traditions about this piece. Huh. I'm going to make you can that damned vibrato, <laughs> which is ironic because, you know, Bacchiano's vibrato is, is, is just legendary. Well, why would he do that from the outset? Just well, quit the vibrato. Uh, I, again, be, because of the way students came in. Look, I take myself as a, as a personal example. I came in playing like, expecting orchestral players to, to sound like Rafael Mendez, you know? And so I would come in with this kind of mariachi hard at- attacks and, and, uh, and this kind of really very, very overly rich sort of phrasing. And Vacchiano just in so many words just said, no, you can't do that. <laughs> And he's thinking about the orchestras that he knew when he was breaking in. And the use of vibrato in this was really very, very, uh, very limited. Much more like the, um, the British traditions. You know, you, you, the, um, what, what was his name? The guy, uh, was it John Lang um, uh, from the LSO before Morris Murphy came in? Um, this kind of straight, sound. Look, if you were to audition for um, a German orchestra, okay, one of the things that you'd have to play for your audition would be, would have been the, would be, I think still, the Haydn Concerto, first movement, on the rotary valve. You can't go in there playing it on, uh, and trying to sound like Maurice Andre on the, on the first, you know, on, uh, on, on the E-flat trumpet. Is that they rotary valve B flat trumpet. Rotary valve B flat trumpet. That's what they want to hear. Helmut Vobisch. You see the old Helmut Vobisch uh, 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 approach. That was kind of the personification of the German playing. That was the tradition. So um, here, I think in, in in America, what they're looking for is a beautiful sound, and a good basic sense of expression. And I think if you're able to stir somebody on the committee, if you can play something and really touch that person, that's points to do that. How are you going to do that? Well, you have to have all the basic things in place and use those basic things as tools for your expression. They're either going to buy it or they're not. And that's that's the simple truth of it. Well, getting back to Voisin, he, he the criteria for him winning that job back in the day was quite different from it is yes. today, isn't it? There <laughs> yes. was no committee back then. He basically no. played for, I guess, just the music director, maybe the principal trumpeter. You know, well, the principal trumpeter was his dad. So, 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 for example, I mean, if, since we're using him as an example, I think uh, Roger came in as third trumpet, I believe. Right. And so when Rene... Um, left, he had sort of proven himself. That people knew what this kid could do, and he wound up moving up to the the first shot. And see, this is the thing: without the committees and all that, if he had not performed well, well, then he would have been out. Right. And that's right. the way it was back then. And, and, and we were just mentioning him so spe- specifically, but the criteria overall to win a a job of that stature sixty years ago was very different than today. And so maybe, and I'm just I'm just speculating here, but maybe that's why players felt a, a bit more license 
to yeah. express themselves. Right, because you get you get seven or eight people together discussing this and that, <laughs> right. then all of a sudden it's a college cafeteria, you know, and, and all the stuff that, <laughs> that goes on then. But when it's just you and the music director, an intelligent music director is going to to know pretty quickly what you've got. And mm-hmm. the, the, the famous stories about Vacchiano and his his auditions. I mean, he, he played two auditions in one day, and in each one he played one excerpt. For for Simon Mantia, he played the Rosen Cavalier excerpt where he rises up to the high D flat, makes the crescendo. Mantia said, you got the job. <laughs> That's all I need to hear. If you can do that, the rest is just gravy. And then for Toscanini, he played the, uh, uh, it was a third trumpet uh, associate position, and all he played was was a little la from uh, La Mer. That's it. He just played that. So soon he left, came back, played again. All right, fine. <laughs> came back, played again. And if he was able to play it after five minutes each time of not playing a note and handle the pressure then he would be fine for the rest of the job. And Toscanini was right. Simon Mantia was right. You know, it's, uh, I think that these guys were great for a reason. You know, they, they, had, they had the goods. They had the tools. So these directors, they would know, they, they would know what they're looking for. Yeah, And exactly. they would just hear uh, Vacchiano play the one thing. And he said, yeah, this yeah. is what I need. Now, in contrast, um, when, when Bud played his audition for Rodzinski, man, <laughs> Rodzinski just had him go down the list. And, uh, and he gave him the job and, until he found out that Bud had literally no experience. And he said, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> I think I might need to hear, all, hear a little bit more. And so that's when he went to, to orchestra hall in Chicago. And then Rodzinski really put him through the grinder. And he played everything on the planet. He must have played uh, uh, for about an hour. Wow. A- a- after which uh, 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 Rodzinski said, you have passed summa cum laude. So, <laughs> you know, that's... Different times, different moments, but I, I guess they felt like they could do that because there was no, <clears throat> there was no tenure, there was no uh, uh, um, uh, probation thing. You either could play the job or you couldn't, mm. and if you couldn't, they knew pretty quickly yeah. and you were out. And some detractors would say, "Well, there was no job security back then." Well, too. that's that's this is very true. It, yeah. It's true. It's like right. anything. I mean, you know, the ball players and mm-hmm. Major League Baseball went through all this stuff. Everything, everything is a process. Everything yeah. is a process, and there's there's good and bad to every process. Yes, you know, we didn't invent orchestras sixty years ago. Orchestras <laughs> have been around for a long time, and they functioned as as they did function, and and now they're functioning a little bit differently. And you 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 can't say that that everything is is absolutely perfect now because it's not. You know, it wasn't perfect back then because it wasn't. Mm-hmm. Ooh, a lot of people who who paid the price for the incredible amount of pressure. I mean, look at uh, Vacchiano used to talk about this, but but the, the sheer amount of, of TV stuff that they used to do back in those days. You know, playing on the air like that, that's a lot of pressure. The uh, the the big concerts that you would play, the venues, the the tours you would have to do, the schedules, and you'd have to stay up because when the audience showed up, they didn't care about anything that happened to you 
that day. All they cared about was what happens after the conductor steps on the podium. And after paying, uh, you know, whatever obscene amount of, of, of money they would pay for a ticket, you know what? They had every right to, to expect a, a, a very good performance. Um, All right. Well, you said something a few minutes ago that piqued my interest. And you okay. said something along the lines of if Roger Voison, the great uh, principal of the Boston Symphony of years past, if he were to take an audition today, there's no way he would win it. Do you stand by that statement? Playing the way that he did. Yes. Playing the way that he yes. did, I would I would say no. I mean, yes, I would stand by that okay. I would stand by that that statement. All right. So, I'm because I know that I know personally that a lot of players today they get a little turned off by the the standards of the orchestra. They they think about I don't know if you call it integrity or they, they just they just want to express themselves musically mm-hmm. and they they may look at what is required to win an, an orchestra job and they think I don't think that's really for me. I like the music. I love the repertoire, but I don't think I don't want to uh, uh, perform or I don't want to prepare and devote my life to that so that I can do something that doesn't really reflect myself. And I'm just, I'm just speculating. I don't know if anybody's thinking that, but there's, I have a good chance. There's a good chance that somebody is thinking that. So my question for you is we're going to do a little mental gymnastics here, but let's say that Roger Voison was here in 2021 and he's, he, he, maybe he just loses a job. He's auditioning for the Minnesota orchestra because Manny Laureano says 40 years is enough. I'm going to go retire. He, he doesn't win the job, even though he's clearly got the chops. What do you think he would do? He would probably do one of two things. Either work very hard to become a soloist, or he would do what so many folks are, are, are doing now and get himself on the internet and play a certain kind of repertoire his way and get people to kind of buy into the the uh, the spectacle of whatever it is that he's doing, and and I've seen this not only with brass players but a lot of string players. You know, the, we are not out of the era of the gimmick. <laughs> the, the the gimmick has been a, a, around for as long as centuries. humans have been breathing. Exactly, it's exactly, <laughs> and and so I think that people. Given that situation, if they still wanted to play, then what other choice is there? Because if they go into teaching, what are they going to teach? They're going to teach people to play in ways that aren't going to get them um, hired. So it has to be then about what that person does. If, If we're talking about integrity, about personal integrity, well, then you get to uh, kind of put your money where your mouth is and see if anybody is really interested in what you have to say. And you have any number of ways of, of, of achieving that. So thus are born all the chamber groups and I think the, the, your, your, your soloist types, whether they're kind of internet phenoms or whether they're people that actually do have the uh, 
the wherewithal, the chops, the uh, can actually get make a solo career. You know that that's a great question. Uh, I mean, I there's there are lots of players out right now. I don't know so much uh, trumpet players, but uh, uh, string players. It seems like there's a ton of them. You know, they're out there with their various little gimmicks that they do. And not saying they're not good players, but I think they're recognizing that they need a little something extra to get the attention because we are also in a period where there are a lot of really fine musicians. There are really a lot of fine ones. And so what's going to distinguish you from the next guy? What is going to distinguish you? Is is the beautiful tone, blazing technique, and wonderful upper register and and endurance? Is that enough? Yes, for this kind of job. Right. But if you are not interested in that, and you want something extra, then you're going to have to put your money where your mouth is. There's definitely speaking about this. There's definitely adding a uh, an element of your personality. Right. In addition to your playing. Right. And that I think that's my my first question about uh, years, and about an hour ago was that that something something in that in that player, in addition to the the chops, you have to have a personality. Yeah, you have to have something that is compelling. I mean, yeah. simply put, right? You you've got to to have something that people want, or you've got to. Uh, make people realize that they've been missing out on something, that you've got something that is so special that they didn't even realize they needed it until suddenly you exposed them to it. Right. Look at the Canadian brass. Of course, I was just thinking of Look them. at the Canadian Always brass. Always my heroes. There, 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 there are all these great brass quintets. There was the American brass quintet, there was the Empire brass quintet, and they had certain kind of uh, performances that they would give, mostly classical repertoire right and then all of a sudden here come these five lunatics that could play the blazes out of their instruments i mean ronnie rom fred mills excuse me i mean those guys were great players wonderful players and so uh being able to play the uh the the toccata and fugue in d minor and and make it and, and have those notes split up between two players. They go, they go, they go, they go, they go, they go they, Something that nobody had ever tried before. The next thing you know, here the arrangements are out, and every kid in high school is trying to do that. Exactly. Right. Exactly. So there you go. That's and then then after that came uh, Dallas Brass, which had limited exposure. But I remember mm-hmm. going to to their concert in in Denton, Texas, for uh, International Trumpet Guild concert, and I was on my feet, absolutely fabulous. And they introduced something else. They introduced a percussionist. They had a, a, a set player right. that was doing. So they took it just a little bit <clears throat> further. Mm-hmm. So you see, uh, it, it, you've got to, to, to convince people that there's something special that, yeah. that, that's been missing from everything else they've been listening to. Well, Canadian Brass, they had the gimmicks with their Chuck Taylors, right, with their tuxes. Right, right, but then, right. But then like the, the Toccata and Fugue in D minor, that's gimmicky in its own right. Right, because right. Because no right. brass quintet had ever done that before. Right, right. And... Very six And musically, you couldn't argue with it. See, that's the thing, is that when you listen to them 
do it, you go, well, well, they're great. That's it, that's great, and mm-hmm. that and it's it's still true to the piece. Bach sitting here would have enjoyed listening he to that. And he would he would have said. That's very cool. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know he spoke English. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course yeah, he did. Yeah. <laughs> I, ch- I asked Chuck Dollenbach, and it, it, they did a master class one time, and we're getting off track here, but uh, I asked the question, um, what's your philosophy when, you, when you're interjecting humor and music? And his answer was, well, we always respect the music, but when we're not playing, it's fair game. Right. We, we can do whatever we want as long as the instruments are not on our faces right. and, right. and the, the beat isn't going. Anything goes, right. but when we when we get the the mouthpieces on our faces and the music starts, right. there is no humor. Right, we take it very very seriously. And and the fact that they were willing to not only play the music of Gabrielli but also Fats Waller, yeah, be able to do these arrangements of uh, of Vivaldi um, Four Seasons mm-hmm. and all that stuff. Do it legitimately. I got to say, one of the most touching concerts I have ever heard was when they came here. They were on tour, and what they were touring was the um, Art of the Fugue. These beautiful arrangements. They did just about the whole damned Art of the Fugue over at Westminster Church. And the last thing that they did was this chorale that, that Bach wrote, and they ended it right where Bach ended it because that's where he died uh, and oh my goodness uh, what a moment that was i went and saw those guys play and and i was so utterly impressed with the seriousness in fact a great story there's that one um variation there's that one fugue that has a, a, a rhythm that sounds like a jazz rhythm i don't know it's, it's one of the later ones but it's a dun, dee, da, dun, dee, da, dun, and I remember the very first time that I heard it when I was at school. I said, oh, my God, this sounds like like jazz. I, I forget which number it is. And so I asked Fred about it. I, I said, why did you guys leave that one out? And he said, well, you know, I, we didn't want people to think that we were trying to jazz up because so few people huh. know that that they probably would have thought we were screwing around really? with it, which goes right to where to what Chuck was saying. Right. So, so they had integrity <clears throat> enough to mm-hmm. just say, well, you know, let's leave this one out because huh. we don't want people to think that we're messing around with the music. Wow, so that there you is go. Fascinating, that's true story, and yes. that's part of the great fugue, or is it a separate piece? It's it's it's, it's part of the 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 entire art of the fugue. I mean, it's, it's oh, like uh, yeah, twenty four fugue. fugues mm-hmm. or so. Wow, interesting. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, you know, telling you all these stories, James. As I finished telling you that story, flashing through my brain was how lucky am I? to have gotten to know the guys from from Canadian Brass. Maurice Andre let me hang out with him in in uh, his in in the dressing room while he warmed up and we just spoke in in Spanish and French and says and and just listening it says this incredible friendship I have with Doc Severinsen. I've gotten to know Jerry Schwartz. I've got I mean it's just the list of, of luminaries and wonderful, great artists that I have gotten to know. What a gift. Uh, it, it, it's, it really sends chills down my back when I, when I think of how unbelievably fortunate this kid from East Harlem <laughs> in New York City grew up in the projects and one day went to school 
somebody put a mouthpiece in his hand and then a trumpet and then all this started to happen. Right. Met up with, got a scholarship to study with um, a member of the New York Philharmonic, then wound up at Music and Art High School with a bunch of other nerds who just ate, drank, and <laughs> breathed and slept music. Then the Juilliard where I got to actually sit in a room where Herbert von Karajan was giving a class to conductors in the Rite of Spring. Uh, let's see who was with me at that time. Yo-Yo Ma, I think, was was just leaving school while I was coming in. Then my great colleagues that that I that I was in. Phil Smith, his f- last year at Juilliard was was my first year, so I got to know Phil a little bit. How lucky am I? How blessed am I? How could I not tell the stories of these people? And then to get up in front of the Minnesota Youth Symphonies for 32 years and be able to tell a lot of these stories to these young musicians who are just eating up every story about what is called being inspired. Whether the day after Mr. Vacchiano died, and and I had received that phone call, and the next day I brought a recording of. Mahler Third with me, and I played the chorale for them. I said, "Guy, I want you guys to to hear this." I said, "This was my teacher who just passed away," and I made them sit there while we listened to the entire chorale to the end. And I was bawling like a freaking baby. You know how lucky am I to have had all of those to have met all of those people, had all these wonderful experiences, and then get the opportunity to share them with young people, hoping that you make uh, that, that make an impression that would drive someone else. How lucky am I? Hmm? Pretty dang lucky, Manny. <laughs> I'm with you. And I will say that uh, when I started this podcast five years ago, and it's been through several iterations, uh, through throughout the years and and just rebooted it back just a few months ago. Uh, just just listening, sitting a- across the table from you, uh, most of them are on Zoom or Skype or whatever. So it's a rare treat to sit across the table from uh, one of the guests on my show. But just listening to these stories, I, I never would have uh, dreamed. Just taking in these these stories. And yeah. being a part of it, and uh, it's just a, such a blessing. And I feel like we're kind of wrapping up here, but uh, something came to my mind just a couple of minutes ago. We were talking about playing it safe and being a, expressing yourself musically, and a phrase, and I'm going to patent it. I've, I've already put in the, the paperwork with the government to have a trademark on this, but the safer you feel performing, the more risks you feel you can take. That's perfect. That's perfect. It's it's like uh, people who win consistently at poker. It's amazing how lucky, hmm. how, how how your luck improves with a certain amount of attention and skill. Hmm. And you are exactly right. When when you're sitting, there are those wonderful moments, and you try and extend them that zone <laughs> of, of of just being able to put the horn to your mouth and all this stuff. I mean, I know that people, you know, want to know. Say, well, so look, you've been doing this for now forty four years. 
So what's it going to take for you to retire? And I think you you kind of nailed it, James. I think when I feel that I can no longer take the risks, then it's time to not let the next person, you know, go in there and, and kind of build their career because I'm just not interested in going in, in into the job and and phoning it in. And I, I, I just don't want that. I it's it's not in my it's not in my personality, you know? So uh, that's when I feel that it's that I'm just kind of taking it easy. Uh, I mean, you know, you don't want to work too hard when you when you're going, but you know what I mean. Did you 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 want to feel like like you're like you're still able to say something? And if I'm not saying anything, well, well let somebody who can say something sit in that chair then. So I think you're right. Well, uh, what a when it when that day comes, uh, this. Uh, the gal or the guy who, who uh, is able to win the job, they will have uh, mighty big shoes to fill. But but at the same time, it's just such a great, tremendous history of that orchestra. Yeah. And uh, you've just been you've been through so much of it, and you you're a part of the history of one of the great orchestras of this country. And Thank and, you. and from my understanding, it's become one of the greater one yeah. of the best orchestras in the country because it wasn't always it was good but it wasn't on on the the line of a chicago or a new york but it's up right, there now right, from what i understand right right no i mean i have to agree with you i have seen the changes that have occurred <clears throat> and once again it all boils down to who's on the podium and what it is that they want you know it is, is, uh, it, uh, are they are they phoning it in are they just doing it because uh they want the next paycheck and, and a, a concert that's good enough is good enough or do they want to raise people's hair? Do they want the musicians to walk out of there saying, that was a good show. That was a really good show. You know? And that's why I felt after this, this last concert that we uh, played with uh, Karina Kanalakis. She came in and she she conducted our, our, our last show of the season and I was still able to, to lean over to Bob Dorr and, and, and say to him, that was a hell of a show, wasn't it? And, you know, he, uh, <laughs> he, he smiled and said, yeah, it was. So, okay, then there's, there's another year left in me. At least. <laughs> you you got to take it one year at a time, right? Yes. You, can't, you can't plan for too much more than that. Well, that's the way you have to do everything in life. Yeah. Uh, All right. Well, I am James Newcomb, and we have the rare treat of sitting in person with uh, Manny Loriano. We've been hypnotized by the beautiful wind chime. We have a beautiful late summer day here in Minnesota, right on the lake in the uh, uh, covered the three-season porch. Really, it's always just a, a real treat to get together with you, either on Skype or in person. And uh, just the stories you tell is just wonderful. And the tagline of this show is the story of the trumpet in the words of those who play it. And you are definitely a, a great part of the story of our instrument. And uh, really appreciate you doing everything you've done over the years um, and just giving your, your time to be on the show and, and sharing your knowledge and your experiences with those listening in. Thank you, James. It's a real pleasure to get the opportunity to do that. It's all about the opportunities, 
and when they show themselves, you got to take advantage and always hope that there's somebody out there listening. As long as they're still listening, I'll keep talking. <laughs> <laughs> next, next episode featuring Manny will have polarizing political commentary, so stay tuned. There we go. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thanks for pressing play on today's episode. Make sure you press that little subscribe button on your podcast player if you haven't already, so you'll never miss an episode when they publish. And if you want to dive deeper, you can visit me on the web at jamesnewcombontrumpet.com, where you'll find ways to connect with me via social media and even a customized mobile app that has a plethora of material I think you'll find interesting. Again, that's jamesnewcombontrumpet.com. This is James Newcomb, signing off.